It's ad break time. I'm pleased to announce that the Beyond Solitaire podcast remains proudly sponsored by Central Michigan University's Center for Learning through games and simulations. This week, I have a very special announcement, which is that I will once again be teaching a class for their certificate in applied game design. Come take Using Games to Teach, What You Can Convey Through Play with yours truly. The class runs from January 22nd to February 29th, and I would love to see you there. A link to the registration page is in the show notes. CLGS's latest game, 500-Year-Old Vampire, just finished a very successful campaign, but if you forgot to back it, you can now pre-order through BackerKit. The link is also in the show notes. I also want to plug my own Patreon. Your support means a lot to me, both emotionally and financially. Patreon money is what makes it possible to keep improving my channel by upgrading the equipment, and I'm also hoping to increase the amount of videos I can publish over the course of the next year. If you want to help out, head over to patreon.com slash beyondsolitaire. For now, though, let's get on with the show. Hey gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and I'm here in the podcast this week with a very special guest. This is Dr. Stephen Daschle. He is a researcher in residence at the American University Game Center, which is so cool. How are you doing today, Stephen? I'm doing fine, thank you. And thank you for bringing me here. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about some of the stuff I do. Oh no, this is all for my benefit, trust me. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but tell us about the Game Center. I want to know more about this place and your work there. Uh, so the Game Center has been around for X number of years. I, it existed long before I got there. It was actually started by another game studies researcher by the name of Lindsay Grace, who is now um, an academic who is working in the state of Florida. And um, it is uh, run now by the, the director, Andy Phelps, um, and I am an individual that came through the Game Center as a postdoc, and I did a lot of work surrounding games. I had produced a lot of papers over the two years that I was a postdoc from 2021 to 23, and when I finished, I didn't have a job right outside of my postdoc, and I still had some research that I was working on and I wanted to finish, so they offered me what's known as researcher in residence, which means I can stay around, I keep my email address, I keep on doing my work, but I don't get paid. So it's fine with me because I enjoy doing this game's work, and there are three or four projects I really want to finish. And so it just provides me the opportunity to continue the game's work, continue production, and there's going to be some exciting stuff coming out. I believe it. And you just got a new position as well, if I recall correctly. Yes, that is correct. I am a research assistant professor for the Center of Urban Health Equity at Morgan State University, which is the state of Maryland's biggest HBCU, which is Historically Black College and University. I'm going to be doing work specifically looking at discourses surrounding well-being and to some degree health and health equity in African-American men and Latino men. I'm also looking very closely at the utilization of leisure and games being a part of leisure and how that plays into ideas of African-American masculinity and Latino masculinity and how men in those subcultures are judged for engaging in uh, leisure activity in a way that other populations are not judged. So the first book I'm going to write eventually, which hopefully I will start very, very soon next summer, will be looking at that. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so I think we're going to get back to this point. But you're, one of the things that made me so excited to have you on is that your research is informed by my personal favorite theorist, <laughs> because he was the first theorist that I read who... 
I felt like I really understood what he was saying and I could look around at the world and understand it. Uh, and that is Pierre Bourdieu. Um, so we'll talk about Bourdieu in a second, but do you want to kind of tell the audience, like, you know, we talk about discourses, we talk about academic theory. What are those things in layman's terms and like, why are they so important to academic work? Well, I, I think you did a good job of setting it up in that we are samesies because I did the exact same thing with Bourdieu that I started reading Bourdieu and it's like, oh my gosh, everything makes sense now. That academic theories in various fields, not just sociology or anthropology, but various fields, they make sense of the world and they put a structure around the things that happen. Because one of the things we talk about in behavioral science is that, sure, we would love to believe that humans are these creatures that are able to do an infinite number of things. But there's a pretty set number of things that people tend to do in society, which is set by norms. And there's a way to understand that. And these theories provide a way to understand that. And there are some really good theories out there. There are some great feminist theories. There are some great conflict theories. There are some great economic theories that explain things for the world. And for us in academia and those people who engage in academia, there is this sense that you will connect to a particular theory, that one theory you'll start reading and you'll just be like, Boom, that makes sense. And I admit, when I was an undergrad, that theory was Goffman. But by the time I started working, and Irving Goffman is a very popular theorist at the undergraduate level. But by the time I started working on my graduate work, I started to see, okay, Goffman's very superficial. I need something a little bit deeper. And Bourdieu definitely filled the void. And so I have read just about every book that Bourdieu has written and he's written a lot. His shortest book is like 100 pages. His longest book's about 900 pages. So it's a lot of work. Yes, but it's good work. Yeah, I think the way it, I understand theory is, so I actually had an undergrad class where I was being pushed, you know, it was, I, I'd already had a pretty strong interest in going on to get higher degrees after undergrad. And the professor mm -hmm. was pushing me to engage with theory, but like didn't really know how to explain what it was that I should do. So my first understanding of theory is just frustration. <laughs> <laughs> Weirdly, I took a musical anthropology class and we we're supposed to join like a musical community. And mm -hmm. I decided to take piano lessons and get to know, cause I'd played piano in high school and like get to know the people who were also taking lessons from this teacher and like go to a recital and, you know, kind of be part of it. And mm -hmm. that teacher, a grad student recommended that I look at distinction and talk yes. about the kinds of pieces that people were learning and like why piano and who's in the piano community. And honestly, that was probably the best thing for my academic classics future that I could possibly <laughs> No, it I, it totally makes sense. Once you once you get Bourdieu's sense of cultural capital, everything just like it's like oh my gosh, everything totally makes sense. And his his ideas, he's a little convoluted as a writer in that he does that thing that French theorists do, where they don't just explain something; they have to tell a story to explain it. So once you yes. get nine pages into it, it's like oh okay, this is what you're trying to say. And so, um, and, and you made a very good point because what theory does is at the end of the day, help me make sense of what's going on, <laughs> make it make sense. And that's what theory does. That theory will take something that's going on in your regular life and it will make it make sense. It'll provide a framework to say, oh, this isn't just 
the universe screwing with me. There is actually some app plan and there is some structure here that makes it worthwhile and is something that other people are going through and that people have been going through for a while. So yeah, there's definitely a benefit to theory and, and finding what your key theory is. And it's a, it's a journey. Yeah. And you can, there's so many ways to try different ones. Like if you want to look, if you want to do feminist theory, I think people also have a misunderstanding of like you, you're, you're, you're taking theory as like the law of how everything works and it's correct. It's not so much that theory is the facts about things. It's a framework that helps you like, Oh wait, this is now come to the fore of my focus because I'm looking at things in this way. So if you're right. looking at things through a feminist lens, you're like, Oh, okay, this is the role of women and how women are treating the system. And oh, okay, I can have some insights because I was looking at it that way. Or like Marxist theory, which I know like gets people going because it has the word mm -hmm. Marx in it. It's like, oh, let me look at the conditions of workers and laborers and, you know, what society is giving back and like the role of, you know, ownership in a society. Like, let me, let me think right. about that and I'll do it this way. Nope, and, you know, of nope. course I'm a high school teacher, so I get to hear about critical race theory but it's just another theory. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really interesting because um, one of the fascinating things about theory is that people think, oh, many theories are easy and that if you just understand this piece, then you understand the theory. But most theories, most really good theories, have been talked about by a number of people. And so there is a lot of nuance and there's a lot of depth. Whereas Marxism is a theory that's created by Karl Marx, but there are neo-Marxists and there are other theories that are aligned with Marx, such as um, in sociology, Max Weber's work, which a lot of people love and people are like, this is great theory. It's really based off of Marxism. And if you look really deeply at the work that Bourdieu is doing, it's very informed by Marxist theory. I mean, it, it works under a premise of Marxist theory, not necessarily looking at the worker, but looking at the things that the worker does and the structure that the worker exists in. And to explain, well, why is it that people of this particular group like football and people of this particular group like polo? And it allows us to understand it. And again, it makes it make sense to a degree. It doesn't provide any answers. It provides a guideline for why it may be true. And as you get older and more informed in your theory, you may change your mind. And the theory evolves because theory is living. And that's, that's one thing one of my old professors used to always say, theory is living. So it's not just what was written down, it's how it's taken beyond that. Yeah, I, I see it as something that gives you a way to have a good conversation. Mm -hmm. because it gives you some rules Absolutely. of engagement to try out. Yes. Yes. No, that's, so, that's definitely true. So back to our man, Bourdieu, uh, mm -hmm. what's, what's cultural capital? Why does it matter? So, uh, so Bourdieu is this theorist who talks about the idea of the structure of society. And he says that the structure of society is historically reinforced and that there are certain things that we've come to understand as these things are true, these things are believable, these things are what we know and we appreciate in society. And the things that Bourdieu tends to focus on are 
a couple of concepts that I'm not even going to get into because they are rabbit holes like habitus and dexus. But he talks about the idea of capital and capital are things that are valued in a particular society. And Bourdieu, he passed away right at the turn of the millennium. And by the time he passed away, he'd come up with really five different forms of capital. The easiest is economic capital, which is things that are worth certain things and things that we see as valuable because they have some type of commercial value. He also uh, outlined the idea of social capital. And social capital are the people we know, the networks we build, the individuals that we can connect with, and we are allowed to connect with in our social standing and our social space. He then develop what's known as symbolic capital, which are things that by themselves are meaningless, but they stand for something. And they may not necessarily have an amorphous form outside of standing for something, but that standing for something is extremely important. Like when someone says, I'm a veteran, that it embodies this entire concept that, it, that the individual inherits by simply saying, I am a veteran. And a veteran is symbolic of something, and that is its own capital. He also looked at what's known as linguistic capital, the words that people use and how people communicate and how certain levels of communication have value over others and how in certain spaces, certain types of communication have value, whereas they wouldn't have value in other spaces. And the last, which is cultural capital. And cultural capital is in its own way slightly complicated because there are three pieces of cultural capital. But cultural capital are the things in a particular society that people see as having some form of value again. And there is embodied cultural capital, which is kind of the things people do and the things people say and the way people act. There is objectified cultural capital, which are things that have value. And then there's institutional cultural capital, which is kind of the notification and the acknowledgement you get from overarching organizations. I love Bourdieu's uh, first example that he gives in one of his books, where if you own a, a, a Picasso, that is objectified cultural capital. The Picasso itself is objectified cultural capital. If you can look at it and recognize it's a Picasso, and you can tell somebody why a Picasso is important and why it's valuable, that is embodied cultural capital. So it's about action and knowledge. If you have a PhD in art history and you can talk even deeper and society recognizes you as one of the world's foremost in Picasso art and discussions of Picasso, that's institutionalized cultural capital. So all of those things are important. And breaking out of that is a type of cultural capital because of the determination that Bourdieu doesn't do well with gender. Where Bourdieu is just like, oh, gender is just another thing, and it's sort of important, but yeah, really, it's just something that falls into the structure of hierarchy. And uh, he wrote a book called Masculine Domination, which is probably his worst book, and, and it really showed how he didn't like handling gender. He didn't want to say gender was that different, that 
people that focused on gender, nah, maybe they shouldn't focus on gender because gender is just another thing that can be stratified in society. So other people have looked at gender and have determined that there is a such thing as gender capital, which are actions, knowledges, behaviors that have value when they are embodied in particular forms that we denote as gender. So an individual who is identified and embodied as a man who knows all of the stats of all of the quarterbacks in the NFL, there is a value to that that gives him a level of esteem among other men who are sports fans. However, if someone was embodied as a woman and had that same knowledge, it would start to have a level of confusion and suspicion as in, how do you know that? Where did you learn that? You must have brothers that play football or brothers who were big into NFL. Not assuming that possibly that that embodied woman has the same experience as that embodied man, but that knowledge is far more valuable and far more useful in society to the man because nobody questions whether he has the knowledge, he just gets esteem for having it. Ew, that's a really good way of putting that. And I feel like this definitely applies to gaming. Um, yes. So you, you, so you've done a lot of work with gender capital and mm -hmm. um, in, in two areas. One is the military, which I think is where you started. Yes. Um, and the other is gaming. But I actually want to talk about. Ooh, let's talk about gaming first, because then I want to push you over into war gaming at the end of this for my own personal curiosity reasons. But sure. I read your article about um, gender capital and Grand Theft Auto, which I thought mm -hmm. was extremely interesting. <laughs> So where did you start, I guess, with wanting to look at video games for this? I think Grand Theft Auto is a really good choice to talk about these issues. And then what are the, sort of the, some of the generalizations about what you found? Okay. So a lot of this grew out of me using a lens of Bourdieu and specifically not only Bourdieu, but a lot of the feminist sociology that I learned while I was working in my PhD to really, really deeply examine the gaming space. And one of the things that I came to realize, which, I mean, I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons since I was 13, so over 30 years. And the D&D group that was my longest running D&D group, which I just left because I didn't have time for it anymore, uh, has been running for 21 years. So I, I, and, and it's a party of 10 people. So it is, a, it's a huge gaming party. Uh, 10 people normally, one DM and nine PCs. So one battle takes hours, <laughs> utter hours. But one of the things that I noticed in looking at gaming spaces is that when we start talking about the capital that is valuable in the gaming space, it is distinctly male in that if you are at a table and you want to press your opinion, the styles of discourse that we encourage through gender socialization for little boys and, and men are the things that serve you best at the table. I wrote a paper in the International Journal of Role Playing talking about the concepts of rules lawyering and gamesplaining. And what's more male than rules lawyering and gamesplaining in terms of this intellectualization of the game to the point to say, I'm the smartest person at the table. And gaming, gamesplaining saying, by me explaining it to you, I clearly know more about this game than you do. And gamesplaining, of course, is a take on mansplaining. And I pointed out that, yeah, there's this 
male element that is subtle enough that you might not pick it up, but the moment you pick it up, you're just terrified throughout the rest of your gaming experience. And I started looking at other types of gaming, not only analog gaming or tabletop gaming, but also digital gaming to see if that male element persisted. And I will point out one of the most glaring places where you see this male element is at gaming conventions. I mean, gaming conventions are very masculine in the way that they present themselves and the expectations of the people in these spaces. And I wanted to see if this did branch out into other gaming spaces. And what I did was uh, somebody shared with me the uh, tweet that started that paper on uh, Grand Theft Auto. And the tweet was kind of a leak that said, hey, guess what? Grand Theft, the next Grand Theft Auto, the protagonist may be a woman. And that tweet got a whole bunch of responses. And I was just shocked at the variability of the tweets just in a first glance. And so what I did working with Andy Phelps, who's the director of the Game Center, is that he pulled down all of those tweets. And then I started analyzing and grouping those tweets into the categories to say, okay, how are individuals that can identify as men responding? And how are individuals that I can identify as women responding? And what I saw is kind of understandably that men either were okay with the idea or they hated the idea. If they were okay with the idea, they weren't super enthusiastic about being okay with the idea. They were like, huh, sure, great, cool. If they hated the idea, they got horrifically misogynistic in hating the idea. So there was one comment that I seem to remember talking about, oh, well, is one of the tasks going to be cleaning the kitchen? So it was really, really attacking the, the stereotypical idea of women using sexism and misogyny. So those were the polls for women or for men. The interesting thing I found is when I looked at women and women were actually weaponizing masculinity and talking bad about the men who were talking bad about women and the way in which they were utilizing masculinity is where they were criticizing the masculinity of the men that were talking bad about the possibility of a female protagonist. So insinuating, oh, well, if you could find a girlfriend, you wouldn't be this bothered or you must have a small penis if this is your belief. And it, were, it was these kinds of comments that really led me to see that it's not just about men hating or men loving or women loving or women hating or in anywhere in the gender spectrum that there is this binary. It's that there is this very complex nuanced response that goes on. And gender capital has been a really useful tool to kind of parse that out. Oh, that's, that is super interesting. Um, I think about that in my own gaming interactions where very often, you know, not always, but very often I am, you know, the only woman at the table. Mm. Um, and I think about my own argumentative styles, the way I like to dress and like, it all just feels normal and authentic to me. I'm not like mm -hmm. putting on a show. But, you know, you look back at your life and you think, well, how was my particular way of presenting myself to the world formed? And I can't help but wonder if it's because I always really enjoyed things like games, mm -hmm. video games. I preferred 
basically anything to dolls when I was younger. Um, mm. I had a dinosaur and bug face. <laughs> and, and so, you know, now I'm, I'm a cis straight white lady, but I also have short hair. I am loud. I take up space. <laughs> and, and it's like, oh, where did I learn to do that? And I wonder if it's that I learned it because all my hobby spaces were predominantly male spaces. There is a possibility. I mean, and Aaron in his book that I know you talked to him about, he talks about that idea of the network of privilege and the way that you access that network of privilege is that you have to act in a particular way in those spaces and you just subconsciously do it. I don't think that that anybody who's in a marginalized group consciously recognizes that we are being treated different in the microculture of our table, but we recognize subconsciously, you know, this way that individuals are doing things, this works. So I need to emulate this way. And I mean, I saw it in myself that I went through a rules lawyer phase and it was all about like pretty much cementing my place at the table uh, because of my feelings of inadequacy. Because when I first joined at the age of 13, I was playing with a bunch of 18 and 19 year olds I did not know. I I lived in a small town and uh, there was only one place and this was in the 80s and in the midst of the satanic panic and there was only one place where you could really play D&D and I was playing with a table full of people I didn't know and I was the only black person at the table. So I came into the space just feeling very meek and feeling like I didn't know anything when I had, from a paratext point of view, read every book and knew it cover to cover. But everything seemed to fall away when I got into the real space and recognized, no, there are ways in which you make yourself known in these spaces and you have to pick them up. And slowly but surely I did. And Again, very similar to your statement, it's not that I was consciously doing it. It really is a look back onto the circumstance and with hindsight saying, yeah, that's probably how it changed. Yeah, like, oh, I can see why my evolutionary pathway looked like that. Now that I look back at the environment I was in. <laughs> but oh, I, yeah. the other, so something I kind of wanted to ask you, because I've just thought about this as a gamer and somebody who likes board mm-hmm. So one thing that's very interesting in our society as a whole is I feel like we really downgrade play as important. It's, oh, it's just a game. Oh, these are toys for children. Why are you wasting your time? Like, actually, uh, when I mentioned that somebody had looked at my gaming blog back in the very early days, I was excited. Like, I had a post that got, like, more than, like, two views, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, The school nurse where I was working at the time came by, and I was like, yeah. She was like, Liz, why don't you write about something important? And... To me, I realize that, like, wait, wait, but to me, this is important. But mm-hmm. how do you kind of square the desire for cultural capital among gamers with the fact that, I mean, does gaming have wider cultural value these days? Is that something that's changing? And how do those things kind of interact with each other? Oh, that, those are good questions. Oh, and I'm so, <laughs> I, I will limit what I have to say about it in that I understand your plight because when I first started working on my dissertation, I thought I wanted to study games. And I got a lot of very polite critique from people in my department about, is that really what you want to do? Maybe you might want to consider something else. And 
they didn't outright say you shouldn't research games, but there was a fear that if I did want to go into the academy and be a full-time professor, that I would have a hard time justifying it because my dissertation was on games. And I think in the academy, in game, game studies, which seems like a vibrant field, particularly if you are adjacent to game studies, it feels like this vibrant, huge, active field that is really a part of the academy, but it really is seen as kind of an additional pop culture thing in part of the academy. I won't say what large association did this, but most recently there was an issue of in a large association, people wanted to do a game track and the individuals who were running this extremely large conference said, well, is, does that really fall into what we're doing? Because is that really an academic study? And so there is, there is still pushback even in the academy. And so a lot of individuals that you will encounter, I, Aaron is wonderful and Aaron can focus on games for the vast majority of his research work. But most academics, it's like game studies is our sideline because there needs to be something else that justifies our place in the academy. Right. Otherwise, because there, there are very few, there, there are more game studies programs nationwide and worldwide than there ever have been, but there are a large number of people who want to work for those programs, so they become highly competitive. And a lot of game studies work is very much on game design, which those of us who do game theory, it's like, I don't know how to design a game. <laughs> I can't help you there. I'm sorry. I do not know the technical ins and outs of digital game design. So I really look for programs where, oh, can I talk about theory? Can I talk about application to social sciences? And those are few and far between. So it's growing, it's changing. And there is a side of game studies that is really all about synthesizing and looking at the benefits of gaming. So there is like um, a huge movement in the last four or five years looking at tabletop role-playing games and the therapeutic power of tabletop role-playing games. And that is gaining a lot of support outside of gaming to say, oh, okay, gaming is valuable. But what we find, unfortunately, in parts of game studies is we have to link it to something else in order to show that it is still relevant to the larger academic world, which can be a little bit stressful. So if this is all true, how do we get so concerned with our own cultural capital within the world of gaming i mean <laughs> like how do how do we get there you know like i feel like we get so heated and i mean you mm -hmm. could look back even to something like heisinger right and talk about like how play is very serious and within the circle of play like it's very meaningful and then you break it and everyone's like huh and like back to reality so i think there's something to that but mm -hmm. you know i'm a gaming youtuber with a podcast there is a very major aspect to capital like within this community so how would somebody like boards you or how would you like talk about that and your work? I just, I just find that like that contrast very fascinating. No, no, I think you're right that 
there is a huge concern about issues within gaming. And as such, people are very, very interested in the gaming communities about what academics are saying about games. Um, one of my theories, and this is just a theory, so it may not be true, because I've done a lot of work with fan studies, is that all gamers in a gaming community are also fans. So they have a vested interest in their subculture and the perpetuation of the subculture and the why of the subculture. As in, why do we do this? Why does this happen? So I would like to believe that because there is an inexorable link between being a part of gaming subculture, but also being a fan, that there is going to be a deep interest in the overarching development of knowledge and knowledge production about gaming. And sometimes it does seep out. I mean, I think that there, and one of the things I want to talk about in the book that I want to write is that in certain minority communities, games are just seen as diversions. And so if you're in your 20s and your 30s and you're playing games, it's perceived as, why are you wasting your time? And it is interesting because those of us who are in the field or those of us who play games could say, but we've got decades of, of research that shows there are definite benefits to games, but there's still this overarching idea in parts of the social world that gaming is just not valuable. And so it's, it's kind of intoxicating for those of us who are game studies people, because there is a deep interest in the gaming subcultures about what we are doing. And there is a deep interest that we have when we connect to each other. But we also understand that sometimes when we step outside of that space, that the interest kind of wanes and that we really have to justify why. Like at Popular Culture Association, we can get 16 or 17 panels on game studies. It is one of the largest areas at the Popular Culture Association, which is a huge national conference. But at Eastern Sociological Association or American, Soci uh, uh, American Sociological Association, or uh, tomorrow I'm going to the Association of Internet Researchers. Ooh. There's one panel on games. One. Four speakers. That's it. And but what else do people do on the internet? Like <laughs> Yes. Oh my gosh. You are, you are, you are singing my song. Because I'm like, what? Hold up. Social media and games. What else is there? But, but no, four days of talking and there is one panel on games. And it was a little bit disheartening because I thought for sure there would be more discussion. And particularly, I'm more analog than I am digital. So I just assumed there's just going to be more people doing this. And not at that conference, which is a pretty oh, large conference. What's interesting is that, so what you're saying hits me right, like a little piece of my soul too, because I feel like, you know, so I'm a war gamer, a historical gamer, and there's currently so much infighting online about what counts as a war game, mm. what kinds of historical games we should pay attention to, uh, whose voice counts in terms of having authority when speaking about historical games. So is it somebody like me with a PhD or is it a veteran who you mentioned earlier in this conversation who has been playing war games since they started coming out in the sixties? 
So like, you know, we're, we're having kind of a pitched fight inside of gaming about what Mm. does our culture look like? And I think that what you said about us all being fans and therefore all really caring about the direction the hobby is going was really true. uh, Just so true. It had an incredible ring of truth about it and what, and what I've been experiencing in my own, my own gaming world. And Mm -hmm. I just really appreciate that you said that, (laughs) but you know, kind of thinking about, let's so let's let's actually talk about some of your work with the military and maybe how it can connect back so when you were discouraged from gaming you went into talking about gender capital in the military instead correct so what did that look like so that was a really specific um the the first project that i did which was my dissertation work was very specific in looking at individuals who were veterans who were students and I wanted to see how particularly the cultural capital and the gendered cultural capital, which is the masculinity that is part of militarized masculinities, how that translated into the university space, because the military and the the generic university space are night and day. And we do know that there are some points of research that show that the transition for some veterans on campus tends to be rough. And I wanted to see to what degree that had to do with their lack of ability or the lack of desire to eschew some of the capital associated with the military and some of the norms associated with the military when you're on the college campus. Because one of the things I've always noted in looking at my research is the fact that militarized masculinity and militarized practices are valuable in the military. They're also valuable outside of the military. They are highly respected outside of the military. They don't carry as much weight on the college campus. And there is a perception among some people in the military that the college campus is highly liberal and is going to be anti-war. And I really didn't look at that. I just wanted to see for these individuals who were coming back and transitioning back into a civilian world, how their veteran masculinity or how their veteran practices tended to work on the college campus. And what I found is that most of them entered into a process which um, a researcher by the name of Ward came up with, which is called chameleonization, where they kind of hid their veteran status. They didn't talk about it. They weren't embarrassed of it. So if somebody asked them if they were a veteran, they would openly say they were a veteran. But they were working under disclosure that they would only disclose if they were asked. They didn't generally have military haircuts. They wouldn't wear militarized t-shirts. They wouldn't wear any like combat boots. There was one individual who did was like, oh, well, I want everybody to know I was former military. And it's interesting because there's a name for individuals like that in the military. They're referred to as bro vets or vet bros, who, from the perception of veterans outside of the military, they can't let go of the military. And all of the other individuals that I interviewed were very clear. It's like, yeah, I'm not a vet bro. Nope, nope, nope. I can let that go. I can see where it's valuable, but I really don't want to be a walking poster for the military. 
So it was fascinating in this research to look at the fact that individuals would go through a process of um, disclosure and perceiving themselves as the other on campus, but not in the sense that they were in some way more conservative versus more liberal. Most of them just perceived everybody on campus as young. And so Mm. they saw themselves as having far more life experience than everybody on campus. And that really framed how they would interact in class or not. And that's why more of the people that I interviewed said they talked to professors rather than talking to their fellow students. And But they still had very military practices, as in even if uh, the men, and I particularly talked to men or individuals identifying as men, so it was uh, 23 uh, cis-het men and one trans man. And all of the individuals had a very, what I refer to as tactical idea about the campus. They'd go on campus, do what they needed to do, and leave. They wouldn't Mm. hang around. They wouldn't go to the student center. They wouldn't, um, most of them, if they ate on campus, they would get their food, go to the library, into a private room, eat, and then go to class. The only other interaction they had on campus was at the vet center. Other than that, They really did not socialize. They did not do clubs and activities. So there was this very mission-oriented model that that they interacted with. And um, it translates over. And I think in talking about wargaming, that a number, I I don't know the percentages because you are the expert there. I am not. But I would say, I would probably guess a percentage of those individuals who play wargaming have or are involved in wargaming have some military experience and they bring it over into their gaming experience and they use that as a wedge and they use that as a sort of not only symbolic capital but actual cultural capital to say i know more about this because i've lived this am i am i wrong or am i right so i don't know actual percentages i would say that in terms of anecdata absolutely that's familiar um and it's it's on the one hand, I really value that. And a lot of people on the show are people who actually do professional wargaming for the military. So there are hobby wargamers who might be people who are, you know, veterans or maybe they're still in the military, but they're playing for fun, right? It's just mm-hmm. just something that you buy to do in your free time. There's also professional wargaming where you have, you know, a government client maybe you're a think tank, you know, and you are creating a simulation for people who are going to make real-time difficult decisions to help them prepare mentally for that. So it's mm. not a game for fun. It's very serious play indeed. Uh, and there's a ton of crossover between those two areas. Uh. But we're also seeing, so this is maybe two days after Molly House dropped on um, on Backerkit, for those of you who are listening. I, I pre-record a lot of these. So this is mid-October when we're recording this interview. But um, something to me that is very delightful happened a couple days ago, which is that a game that is a historical game mm-hmm. about Molly houses. So basically think like gay speakeasies of 1700s England mm. dropped and got, it's up to over $150,000, like 2000 people have backed this game. Wow. And a lot of those people 
are the same people. And I know this because I did like a solo gaming survey where it was like, what are your favorite solo war games to play? And games from this publisher and more traditional war games were both very high on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, but what that's telling me is there's also part of the war and historical game market that is buying that game. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing cultural shift happen mm-hmm. in real time in the wargaming hobby. And I think that it's at a moment like this, right, that our negotiations about what capital has the highest value right, uh, become the most key. Yes, and, and you're right in terms of a space, a fandom space like gaming, there, there, there becomes this headbutting about what capital does have the highest value. So if you have a, a, um, a book chapter that um, I just put in that hopefully will be coming out um, on digital masculinities, and um, the book chapter is looking at RPG Stackhouse, where people are talking about, like, uh, asking questions about Dungeons and & Dragons and Pathfinder and other games like that on a forum and getting responses from people. And um, what I noted were the masculine discourses that occurred on those spaces and how individuals use certain discursive tools to try to show, I know more about this. Like, for example, one discursive tool is direct attribution to say, oh, well, if you look at page blank, blank, blank of this book, there's your answer. With some people, it is like explicit attribution. Let me just cut and paste it for you. It, and this reinforces, I know what I'm talking about. I know where to find it. And I'll even take the time to show it to you. And then there are other individuals who will tell a story and say, oh, well, this is the experience I went through. And one of the things that I talk about in that chapter is, well, are all of these forms of providing information equal? Or do some people tend to think that various forms have more value? And I think in fandom spaces, because we see it a lot in gaming, where somebody, the first thing somebody will say in defense is, well, I've been playing this game for 20 years. As in, I'm making it known that I am a 20-year veteran of this game, and that matters. That's a piece of symbolic capital that individuals are supposed to respect, whereas you can have 20 years experience and still be wrong about something, but you were supposed to respect that element. Or somebody saying, well, you know, I am an academic who researches this, and I've seen academics who are wrong. I've, I've been wrong before. So well, that's never. It, only, only according to reviewer number two. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and boy, have I been reviewer number two. <laughs> but but it is it is fascinating that we use these kind of elements of fandom cultural capital in order to create wedges. So we can, because the thing about a lot of these games that we play is that the answer is very speculative and that the books are written in a way where there can be multiple answers, but individuals want to say, nope, this is the right answer. And who gets more credence in that circumstance? And it's all about what capital you can put forth. I mean, I've seen people say like, oh, well, I can provide more information because I was one of the 150 contributors to the book. So 
I clearly know more about it, even if they didn't write that particular part. They use the fact that they are an author as some level of wedge to give themselves power. And it's it's interesting because I think in any given situation, unlike other fields of capital that Bourdieu would talk about in other fields of activity and practice, that it's not clear cut in any moment what has more precedence, what has right. more power, that in the gaming space, it could be the person with 30 years experience. It could be the person that wrote the book. It could be the person that wrote the history of the book. It could be the person that teaches about the game. It could be the person that play tested the game. And there, there's just no rhyme, no reason to it. So a question that I have as somebody who's interested in seeing a more inclusive gaming space mm -hmm. is so in a lot of ways, it feels to me like we're all showing up with like a different currency and we don't know what the exchange rate is, <laughs> but, um, you know, how in the face of these differing ideas about what matters and, you know, within certain fields or like, you know, little microcultures like gaming where certain mm -hmm. things have value discursively and certain things do not, how mm -hmm. do you deal with that? I guess, reality and then also help make a space more inclusive? Okay. Hmm. It's a two-part question. And, and I have another piece that is currently under review. And um, yes. I'm not going to say How the did name. I know? Of, <laughs> I'm not going to say the name <laughs> of the journal because reviewer two may be listening to this. <laughs> and this will not go well. <laughs> but um, in that, I talk about the idea of gamer exceptionalism and these general ideas that we have about what we expect out of gaming. But I also talk about the idea that every table is its own microculture. And so when I make broad statements about like, for example, masculine discourse and rules lawyering, I've had people argue back with me to say, well, that's not how my table is. Or that the majority of tables in certain spaces tend to be mostly male, or in some cases, all male, or in some cases, all white. And then people will push back and say, well, no, that's not how my table is. And that's not how any table I've ever played at is. I think one of the first things we need to recognize is that each table and each microculture is its own contained culture that adds to the tapestry of the overarching game. And that we cannot take that what goes on in our particular microculture as a rule for how the gaming world, the broader gaming world encounters any issue. Because all you have to do is go to Gen Con once and then you find out this is nothing like my table. And we're, <laughs> you're just flummoxed for that second. But it is a recognition that the way to change the overall system is to have mass effect of these microcultures and to be able to showcase these microcultures in a broader sense. I think actual play is helping with that to see other tables. And honestly, I have to say, if 20 years ago, you would have told me that actually watching people play tabletop role-playing games for four and six hours would garner millions of people watching them play, I would have said you were crazy because I would say I've watched enough games I didn't play in and fell asleep watching games that I didn't play in to think that nobody would find 
playing a game interesting, but it is. And in watching Critical Role and watching uh, Dimension 20 and watching other people play games, we actually get a sense of, hey, every table's not alike. Every table dynamic is not alike. And maybe, maybe we need to understand that some of these overarching rules that govern the field of gaming, uh, particular types of gaming, tabletop gaming or digital gaming or D&D gaming versus Pathfinder gaming versus uh, diplomacy as a game gaming, that some of the overarching beliefs need to change. Uh, Bourdieu said that that type of change is slow. Some of it is going to be highly resisted because of the fact that people like to lean back on their history and to say, well, this is the way things have always been. And I always say in all the classes that I teach, social change, which is what Wizards of the Coast is doing by like removing race uh, alignments. That's social change. And that is something that changes the fabric of a particular culture or subculture. Social change can be challenging, but it's a lot easier than sentiment change. And sentiment change is people actually believing this needs to happen. And some people will be automatically on board with, that's, that's right, it needs to happen. And then you will have other people who will be like, nope, 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 nope. Things were fine the way that they were, and there's no reason to change. And for every society, we know sentiment change takes a while. And I think some individuals are under the belief, well, if I could change my mind, why can't this portion of the community change their mind? And because there are different levels of attachment to our historical elements of capital and the practices that we've done, and it's easier for some individuals to rid themselves of those practices and learn new practices. And for some people, it's very pragmatic. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And it's it works for them, so why does it need to change? So I think the more we get to see what is occurring in the microculture, the more we have actual plays, the more we have people who are communicating about their individual experiences, the more significant the actual social change and sentiment change is going to be in various parts of the gaming world. Ooh, that's an interesting way to think about it, especially when we think about how many of our micro gaming cultures are now available online for consumption. Mm -hmm. So just, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've done a lot of theory with everyone today. Um, (laughs) Sorry. No, no, I love it. I love it. So (laughs) for people who are going to go play a game after listening to this podcast, and maybe they want to see it in action, what can you look for at the next game you play? to see if you can sort of mentally test uh, some of Bourdieu's ideas about cultural capital and maybe see it in action right in front of your eyes. So one thing you can do is, and that's a really good question, one thing you can do is step back in your own game. And instead of communicating and doing anything in your game, listen to the other people in the game. I wrote a paper a couple of years ago talking about meta discourse. Meta discourse is the conversation that happens at the gaming table that's not really about the game, but wouldn't be happening if the game wasn't going on. 
like pop culture references that are associated with the game, where people are talking about, hey, Monty Python and the Holy Grail and, and making jokes that are in line with the game, but they're really not a part of the game. The, the stories that happen uh, at the gaming table. But, but yeah, so um, looking back and seeing the interaction that happens. And then you can also look at what's going on at the table and recognize like when somebody is gamesplaining and when somebody is rules lawyering. And when that does happen, oh my gosh, rules lawyering eats up so much time. And you can also look at the authority of the game master and how much authority are they providing? Are they more of a collectivist game master where they're just like, where I'm just going with the flow of the group or they're more like we're moving forward and I have a plan and this is going to be the only plan. And you and seeing whose voices at a particular table tend to be privileged over other people's voices and who's given more leeway in their ability to do things. And some of that is a part of the game. Uh, for example, I started playing lawful neutral clerics and in, in the game and um, my party hated me because <laughs> I, my take on lawful neutral is <laughs> that's dumb. Your injury was dumb. It shouldn't have happened. I'm not healing you. And I walk away <laughs> and that did not go over well, but um, it was playing <laughs> to the logic of the character. And, and it's interesting because about three or four people in the party started just buying potions of healing because they're like, he's not going to heal me. And <laughs> it, is, it is interesting that it's something I could get away with because of the way that I kind of commit to the character. And that when I'm playing the character, I'm playing the character. Oh, that's another thing. Discursively. Do people say, my character does this, or I do this, or do they refer to their character in third person like the character's name does this? Because that is a distinction of immersion in the character. And that is a really fascinating thing because at a given table, you'll have different takes on that, which I've always found fascinating. And, and these are things that other people at the table pick up on and on a subconscious level and they feed on and it leads to creating a certain uh, group dynamic. But when you're in the middle of it, you don't even notice it. So yeah, taking that moment to step back and listen to people and you will see these elements of capital as they play out. You will see those circumstances when somebody says, well, you know, I've been playing this game for 14 years. So, and starting it that way, that's throwing around some symbolic capital and some cultural capital. That is simply what people do because it allows them to have that wedge at the table uh, where it would otherwise just be democratic. So those, those are just some examples. And if anybody has any questions or wants some more examples, I can certainly give them to you. So speaking of, we're getting that part. I'm going to ask you my softy questions now. And the first one is always just, I know you're busy, but what have you been playing recently that brought you some joy? Oh, gosh. Um, I recently went back to, after after so much, <laughs> of, of so much of, of, of a distance and absence from it, I recently went back to World of Warcraft. Classic. Really? World of Warcraft. And, and playing it, I have not played World of Warcraft really in about eight years. So um, 
It has been fascinating to do. Very quickly, the story of why I got into World of Warcraft, my master's thesis was on World of Warcraft. And um, I was working at the time with a, a thesis advisor who is a big name in game studies, which I didn't know at the time. But um, I found out that she worked on game studies and I said, hey, I want to study a game. And I'd never played World of Warcraft, but I'd been seeing all of these shows like Ricky Lake, where they were talking about, I left my wife because of World of Warcraft. And I really wanted to look at why are people leaving their husbands and wives and losing their jobs because of this game? And my advisor was like, oh, that's an interesting topic. Yes, you can do your master's project on that. That's fine. I'm like, okay. And she's like, have you played World of Warcraft? No. Why would I play the game? I just want to study the phenomena. She said, no, you know what? You need to go play the game. Go play the game. And then she never saw you again. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> Friday, she told me that. Sunday, I got the gumption to download the game. And that's back in the day when it took forever. Because this was 2009. Um, it took forever to download World of Warcraft. Not like the Blizzard net that exists today. Downloaded it on Sunday, and I was working a full-time job while I was working on my master's degree. Called in sick for the next three days. I was so engrossed <laughs> in the game that I just, uh, and, and, it, and it was right around this time of year when I picked it up. The reason I know is because the Headless Horseman was going around parts of the World of Warcraft world, and, and I love The Legend of Sleepy Hollows. That just like, totally drew me in but um but yeah um i'm back in world of warcraft and i'm loving it a couple of friends uh that i play with they now want to play Baldur's gate three and oh, i've been play, loving that um, yeah i it will be new for me i'm going to buy it i'm not buying it now because I, the, the, there be dragons um i'm going to buy it in november and we're going to play in december so i'm going to get familiar enough with it to play it and then in December, we're going to play during my break, that break that all academics have between Christmas and New Year's. So I'm not losing any time at work. The most precious days of the year. Yes. Given to Baldur's Gate. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, and then, you know, you mentioned asking questions. Where can you be found online? Uh, so I am, I have a contact page on um academia.edu. So if you if you type in my name, Stephen Daschle, and then you put in academia on Google, it will take you to that. I I, I don't have, uh, it, it's kind of like I, I procrastinate too much. I would love to have my own webpage, but every time I start one, it just, it's like, eh, no. So eventually I will have my own webpage. Academia.edu is a good place to find me and find a lot of my writings. Uh, most of them on there, you can download for free and um, you don't have to go through a paywall. If there's anything on there that you can't find that it's not actually on there, all you have to do is email me and my email address is on the academia.edu page and I'll send you a copy for free. I mean, if you want to read my stuff, you are more than welcome to. Um, there's a lot more that's coming out. I have a paper on LARP that is going to be printed in the Journal of uh, American Culture next month. And then I have another paper coming out on, oh gosh, what is that paper? <laughs> uh, oh, 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 it's in, uh, it's, um, it's a, a subset of incels. So 
no interest in anybody on this. But but yeah, there there will be, I've got like seven or eight papers that are in production now that will be coming out over the next year that people should be seeing. Fantastic. Um, and I, of course, can be found anywhere as Beyond Solitaire, like anywhere anywhere but uh steven thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about your work i really enjoyed this thank you so did i so did i i love the opportunity to talk about it and that's an open uh invitation to both you and anybody else that if you have any questions about any aspect of my work or any aspect of game studies at all feel free to reach out to me i would love to converse with people Fantastic. So those of you who are out there, uh, give some thought to the cultural capital in your game group this week. And uh, please like, subscribe, comment, ask questions, and most of all, happy gaming.